0: Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day, we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week, I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So, Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there, you should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. This week on Product Love, I talked to G2 Patel, the Chief Product Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Box. So, you have all probably already heard of Box. They are a cloud content management and file sharing service for businesses. On this week's episode, G2 and I cover everything from product strategy to building high performing teams to why retention is essential. So, let me talk about retention for a second, and it's a favorite topic of mine, anyways. A lot of product managers, I think, are fixated on growth and adoption, but retention is just as significant, and I think maybe more. G2 was advised one time by a friend to try to deeply understand why retention occurs. Not just the metric, but really try and focus on why customers come back. What is so compelling in a product that customers need to use it again? How does the product become a habit in your customer's daily routine? If you can understand that deeply and replicate it, then G2 believes you can talk about growth. But if you don't understand retention, its triggers, or the user behaviors around it, then G2 thinks you're just leaving the success of your product to chance. And I completely agree with it. This got me all to thinking about how we examine retention or how do we frame it in sprints. Oftentimes we're so hyper-focused on the next feature or how we get customers to adopt features I think we need to step back and understand fully why customers come back. How well do we understand what drives retention? So I'd love to know how often do your product teams talk about retention? Let me know at eboduk at pendo.io or tweet at me at eBoduck. Looking forward to hearing from you. Welcome over to Product. Today I have G2 Patel from Box. G2, why don't you start by giving us a little overview of your background?
1: Thank you for having me, Eric. So um, it's great to be here. Background-wise, I um, grew up in India. You know, started my professional career in Chicago in uh, strategy consulting and market research, and then um, moved to Silicon Valley. Started out at EMC in their software division, and then um, you know was brought on as um, CTO, and then from there. I went through a few roles over there of um, running marketing for a while, also having um, you know kind of M uh, and A. M&A. And one of the areas that you know we had to, I had recommended to the board that we should do an M and A, and is um, this whole area of you know kind of cloud collaboration and file sharing, and um, it seemed like it was a very disruptive area at the time, and it still is. And we made an acquisition. I became CEO of that company. I ran that business for about you know, a little under four years. And we, uh, in about three and a half years, we grew it from zero to hundred million. And then uh, Dell was buying EMC. So we uh, decided to sell that asset and uh, we sold it to private equity. And then I joined Box shortly thereafter. And Box was, you know, in a, in a very interesting phase at the time where we had just gone public. We were about 200 million in revenues. And we needed to get a second act. I mean, uh, usually they say it's pretty hard to get one product to product market fit. It's infinitely harder to get multiple products to product market fit and actually get them to scale in revenue. And so that was the challenge that Box had in front of them. And um, so we had to figure out how we were going to have a second act, which had multiple different products that were growing and that could actually all be fed through the same, you know, kind of um selling motion and all of that. And so we were lucky enough where we were, we started, it was 200 million, all the revenue coming from a core product. Now, when you think about about it, about half of our, you know, kind of customers, you know, if you think about, it, about 25% of our revenue in every um, is now through those add-on products that we call. Uh, so anything that might be added to the core business. And so that was kind of the ride that we went through. And we've been uh, lucky enough to, uh, more than triple our revenues during the time period. So it's been a fantastic ride and we still think our best days are ahead of us. So that's where we are. That's that's the story in a nutshell.
0: Sounds really interesting. So one thing I wanted to dig into a little bit is you, you talked about, you know, running marketing and, and now product too, obviously. Talk to me about, you know, those two different roles, how one helped you with the other and what you liked about each.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've been fortunate enough that in my career, I've actually run Every function in the business, you know, product, marketing, engineering, sales, you know, and, and so that, what that did was uh, benefited me from having a really broad aperture. But in most of those areas, the, the way that I thought about it is the origination of the value in a company always starts from the core product and the you know problem that you're solving. And um, that has the greatest ripple effect across the board. And so... Um, Running marketing and what running sales has done for me is a deep appreciation of the fact that if you just build it, they're not going to come. You have to build it and make sure that you're very, very conscious of the mechanism for distribution so that you can get to a scaled impact. And if you just focus on building the product and then don't really think about the go-to-market implications and how it's going to scale to hundreds of thousands of customers and millions and millions of users, then you actually uh, leave a lot of money on the table and you leave a lot of, you know, like the, the impact you have is always kind of limited and, and, and curtailed in that state.
0: So talk to me about what, what drew you to Box.
1: I've always been driven by doing something in my career where, which has a very broad scale impact. The reason I moved to Silicon Valley from running my own business in, um, in Chicago was I wanted to, the thing that fascinated me most about business was scale like the fact that you can actually have something like I would always get fascinated when I, I would travel a lot in my early years of my career and I'd always be fascinated with. there's this company in the U S and all of a sudden you go into some part of Europe or some part of Asia and you see billboards with that company over there. And I'm like, wow, the reach and the global nature of business is so fascinating. And so I always wanted to learn scale. And so when I moved, um, to the US, I actually um, went to a very large company, but they, were, they still didn't have, you know, scale the way that I, I used to think about scale, which was millions and millions of users in the enterprise that you could actually, um, you know, go out and impact. And eventually the addressable market being hundreds of millions, if not billions of users. So I had always said, well, what I want to do is make sure that I can learn deeply about how to have impact at scale. And in order to have impact at scale, in areas that I knew, which was I deeply understood the enterprise domain much more so than the consumer and advertising domain. But I wanted to build products that were much more focused on the consumer sensibilities, but for the enterprise. There's not that many plays that are there, that were there in the world at the time where you could have, you know, products built for with a mindset of building it for hundreds of millions of users already have tens of millions of users using the product. And be able to go out and distribute it to tens of thousands of customers, if not hundreds of thousands of customers over time. So that that seemed like a very intriguing problem. And the thing that really got me excited about Box was we had literally the same product, which actually served a company with three employees that also served a company with 400,000 employees and 14 million customers. You know, so like if you started saying, wow, that that kind of ability to have a product span that spectrum was something that would be a super interesting challenge from a product management standpoint, because you'd have to, each one of the segments of the customers would have different requirements and how do you go out and adjust those just seemed like a pretty great intellectual challenge to solve. And uh, in fact, it's been something that's been the most rewarding in this job is the, the reach, impact and scale that you have.
0: Yeah, I like one thing you said there. You talked a little bit about bringing consumer sensibilities to the enterprise, or I like to think of it as the consumerization of the enterprise that's happening in a lot of applications, especially in the SaaS world today. Box was kind of like one of the leading forces of that trend, right?
1: We were. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's pretty illogical not to think that way. So there is no such thing as an enterprise. Enterprise is just comprised of a bunch of people. And people are not different human beings when they come into work versus when they're at home. They have the same kind of emotions and instincts and preferences and ability to focus as they do at home. So somehow it seemed pretty odd that things were always built not keeping the user in mind in the enterprise, even though in the consumer world they were, they were built keeping the user in mind. So... It just seemed very counterintuitive. Uh, and um, why would you build a product that's ever not designed for a user? Because eventually, regardless of who you sell it to in the enterprise, eventually it's an individual, a person that uses the product. And so you should always design it for that person. And so that seemed like a pretty interesting thing that the world had not caught on to that trend at scale. And so this seemed like, wow, this is a very, very obvious thing that the world doesn't seem to completely agree upon. And we should just go out and make that common you know, kind of place. More.
0: Yeah, and still a huge trend today. It's still
1: a huge trend, but now I think what's happened is you're seeing many, many more companies that are you know paying attention to user experience and design and simplicity and all of those pieces. Uh, there's still enough number of companies that do a terrible job at it, but there's many, many more companies that are starting to think about it. When we were Starting to think about it, you know, five, seven, eight, nine years ago, even when, when we started Simplicity, it just, it was that that trend was just starting and there was as much skepticism around that as there was support for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. I, I, and I see those companies that are doing a terrible job today as being opportunities for the entrepreneurs out there, right? You know, in a, yeah. in a SaaS world where people can just cancel.
1: The best uh, kind of uh, indicator for an entrepreneur for an opportunity is when you see, very high profit pools in companies with very bad user experiences. That's when you know the market's ready to be disrupted. I
0: would completely agree. So, you know, part of the growth, and you touched on it when you mentioned the the second act, is, you know, as that initial product line, you know, grows to the point where there's significant revenue, you really need to have that second act or multiple product lines. Tell me a little bit about those challenges with Box, because I, I think that's That's something that a lot of people don't think about as they're starting a company, but becomes important as they move to, you know, becoming those unicorns or generational companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, the typical stage when that starts becoming an issue is, I think, by the way, if it becomes an issue too early in the cycle, that means your core product was not good enough to get to any kind of scale. What you want to do in the earlier kind of stages, like if you're in a Series A company that's, you know… Sub five million in revenue, sub ten million in revenue. You want to make sure that you have as focused an effort for getting a single product to as many hands as possible, so people start using it. The more you start scaling the business, now you've gotten from ten to twenty-five million as a milestone, and twenty-five to fifty million as a milestone, fifty to hundred million as a milestone. As you start approaching the seventy-five to hundred million range, you should be thinking about like, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that we don't just service the existing addressable market, but we make sure that in the existing addressable market where we've sold a product and our existing install base, we're now finding more reasons for those customers to actually pay us more money because we have, we want to add more value because we've already got context in that account. And so that inflection point typically starts happening at about the $100 million mark, you know, especially if you're, a company that's at 100000000 million, you've gotten to a a very good product market fit, and you've gotten a scaled motion on one product. Now, when you start thinking about getting a second product in the market and add it to the portfolio, and you can use that same momentum that you've actually gotten the first product, $100 million, the the second, third, fourth, fifth products have the potential of scaling at a much faster pace than the first product did. But there's also a potential that a lot of those can tend to – be failed efforts if you don't think about it the right way. Like I'll give you some examples. One is deeply thinking about what is your distribution channel and route to market and who is your economic buyer and making sure that you're not building a product that doesn't leverage your existing strengths on distribution and your existing customers. If you build a product that's completely orthogonal to that, then you might as well actually, you're not getting any leverage from being part of the company. You might as well have actually built that product in a startup. So, you know, those kind of things, I think product managers have to be pretty careful and cognizant of is, what do we need to do to get the second product to product market fit? What do we need to do to get the second product to have a repeatable selling motion? And what do we need to do to get the second product and beyond to have a scaled operation? Because those are the three phases I think of as, when you build a product is get the product to product market fit, identify a repeatable selling motion where you can sell the thing over and over and over again in a very kind of systematic way. And then the third thing is make sure that you can identify a way to go out and scale it. Once you've gotten the first two steps done, don't try to do step three before you've done steps one and two. And I I think um, we were exactly at that point when we started adding a lot of add-on products to our uh, portfolio. And it's actually been, a tremendous um, mechanism for increasing our ASP, increasing our stickiness in an account, increasing the value that we can deliver to the customers, make sure that the customers actually think about us in a much more strategic lens than a tactical lens. And so all of those things start to come together when you get the right products built out. So you have to be very maniacal in focusing on, are we achieving product market fit and getting your don't confuse the product market fit of your core product with the product market fit of the add-on product because just a bunch of customers buy it. You have to make sure that the customers are using the second and third and fourth products just as actively. Otherwise, you're not quite where you need to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting point because when you add additional products, just getting them to buy might be a drag-on effect. But actually seeing the engagement, the usage, the retention in those secondary products is probably a better indicator, right?
1: Yeah, and if you're smart about it, like, you know, you can do a lot of bundling strategies and packaging strategies that can allow you to show revenue, but it's the um, revenue is only interesting in SaaS when it's sticky revenue, and sticky revenue only happens when there's value created. And one of the initial proxies for value being created is there's usage in the product. Usage is not the only indicator that there's value, but without usage, there's a guarantee that there's no value.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've been telling product leaders when I've been meeting with them lately that, you know, retention should be one of the metrics they look at because you really don't know that you have a product that people value until you get that renewal or you get an expansion or you get something that's that that second step in your product.
1: Yeah, we actually think of retention as the most important aspect of the product. And so uh, one of the things that we think about is in retention is, uh, you know, if you don't have Retention in the product, trying to go out and get growth of usage and adoption is almost a fool's errand because you need to deeply understand, like one of the things that I think is a very wise piece of advice that one of my friends at Facebook had given me early on is deeply try to understand why retention occurs. Don't just focus on the metric of retention, but understand why retention happens. Why do customers come back to you? What is it that compel them to come back? And if you can deeply understand that and then replicate it, then you can start focusing on growth and top of funnel acquisition. But if you don't deeply understand retention and the behaviors of retention and what's the causality of the retention, then, you know, the growth is just uh, you're just rolling the dice. And that's actually uh, not a systematic way to go out and scale the business.
0: Yeah, I I like that. I mean, and I I think that's taking it even two steps beyond where a lot of product teams are today. I, I hear a lot of, you know, product managers and managers of product management being incentivized on getting features out the door, right? But that's not necessarily always helpful in getting to what you were just talking about.
1: Yeah, the way I think about features is every feature you add to your product only creates a level of depth and there's a tax to every feature. So the game you're playing in product is, how can I add the least amount of features that create the most amount of value? Because what that does is preserves simplicity and simplicity is what drives usage and usage is what is an initial necessary proxy for construction of value. So, you know, building out more isn't necessarily something that actually creates more value and what it also does is it defocuses you as an organization so you know like sam altman has this great line that he talks about which is i'd rather build a product that few people love than a lot of people like and if you ask him why he says that his thinking on that is well it's a very interesting kind of train of thought of logic which is In order to go out and get a product to millions and millions of people or tens of millions of people, the only way you can do that scalably is by word of mouth. Word of mouth is the most powerful mechanism for viral growth of a product. And word of mouth only happens when people start talking to each other about, have you heard about this thing? Oh, my God, it's amazing. It's when people fall in love with your product. And in order to fall in love with your product, you have to be extremely focused on going out and solving a pain that is meaningful for a very focused group of people. And then from there, expanding on out and um, taking on a larger kind of a broader aperture and mission. But if you don't start with those few people and get them to fall in love with your product, you'll never get that viral uh, coefficient high enough.
0: Yeah, I would 100% agree. So let's step back and talk a little bit about getting into product management. How did you first you know, start with product management? How do you first break into that?
1: Yeah, so um, the part of, a, of the business that I always found most fascinating was, how do you actually deeply think about solving problems that people don't even realize that they have, that in fact tend to be pretty meaningful problems? And that just is such an important skill in life to have, which is understand the problem that people have, deeply think about it, come up with a solution for it, and figure out a way that you can have that solution be designed in an elegant way that puts a smile on someone's face when you've solved the problem. There's a lot of satisfaction and gratitude to that, that you can experience. And so I th- that's what I want to do eventually Always have a lot of, um, you know, my cycles, my brain cycles, I wanted to kind of spend it on that. And I think the other thing I found was product is probably one of the most leveraged roles in an organization where when you uh, make a decision in the product side, literally every function gets impacted by it. So, you know, based on the decision you make in product, engineers are impacted, designers are impacted, product marketing people are impacted in the way that they message and market the product, sales teams are impacted the SEs are impacted, customer success teams are impacted. So there's a ripple effect of every decision you make on what it means to the organization. And that actually requires a level of thoughtfulness that you have to develop. And then the other thing that's really interesting is it is largely a, a skill that you have to run through influence, not ownership. Most people in the organization don't work for the product manager, but the product manager has to influence all of them to do things that they need them to do so that we can actually get the product built out and send, you know, kind of uh, marketed, distributed, and serviced effectively. So from that perspective, it seemed like a massively interesting challenge that would have a lot of surface area. And I also believe that, um, you know, my I spent, I've spent most of my time in my career running companies and being a CEO or running a company. And I think that product-centric CEOs tend to make pretty good CEOs, especially if they have good go-to-market muscles. So that's one where you know it, it just seemed like it would just continue to keep honing my skill and knowing businesses and running businesses by doing that. So
0: Yeah, so let's talk about what advice you would give to someone who wants to get into the field of product management. In, in particular... Is it different if you're talking to people who want to get and become, you know, get their first PM job if they have a technical or non technical background? Does your advice change?
1: My advice doesn't change in that dimension in the sense that what product management is, is a combination of an art and some science around deeply being able to spot problems, build very thoughtful solutions for those problems by. Bringing along with you a bunch of people whose ideas need to be respected and considered as you're thinking about building a solution and not having, you know, and having scarcity become a key trait. So like, you know, prioritization and doing few things really well rather than just trying to jam everything in is the difference between a good product manager and a bad product manager. And I feel like learning the art of prioritization, like all of the skills that you learn in product management are actually really important to learn in life. So, I, I personally don't feel like it's only a domain that technical people can get into or it's only a domain that, like I've seen great English majors be amazing product leaders and I've seen great engineers be great product leaders and there are great marketers that decided to then become product leaders. So I just feel like there's a pretty broad, you know, kind of skill set of people that go there. The only thing you have to have is an extreme curiosity for how the world works and how you want to change it, be to some degree bothered by badly designed things and badly built products and so that you want to actually feel the need to change and compel to change them and then have a lot of humility to say i'm going to actually learn the skill of working through influence rather than working through ownership if those things actually excite you then product's a great field for you to be
0: in so when you hire product managers you know what do you look for what skills what qualities what soft skills
1: yeah that's a great question so i um we talk about this a lot i mean if you get extremely reductive things that I think are the most important for a product manager in my mind. Where I've seen a lot of product managers fail is when they don't have these three or four few skills. But like the two most important ones in my mind are, you have to be intrinsically hungry and have a fire in your belly. And the second one is you have to be insanely curious so that you can just constantly be questioning why. And I think curiosity is also important to have over another trait, which is judgment, which is like when someone tells you something, you have to be curious on why that is the case, rather than judging on why that's right or wrong, or on, on, on kind of whether that's right or wrong. So those are the two that I keep in mind up front. The third skill that's super important is clarity of thought and communication. And I feel like um, the absence of someone being able to think clearly and being able to prioritize, uh, scarcity is kind of a, um, you know, if you don't feel like you're scarce on resource, you're just short on vision in my mind. And so you have to be extremely comfortable in working with in in a deeply prioritized world where you can stack rank and draw a line and say, this is all we're going to do, because this is what's actually completely essential. And everything else after that is a luxury, and almost kind of, you know, punitive to the overall value. And then the other piece that's really important as well is, how can you make sure that you not only are you communicating clearly, but you're doing it in a way that's completely inspiring people to go out and follow your lead. But I think the most important, if you were to say what are the two most important things, it's hunger and curiosity. And I would say clarity of communication and ability to motivate a group of people, whether they be engineers or sales reps or marketing people are the other traits that are pretty important.
0: And how do you test for those soft skills, those qualities?
1: You know, on the hunger side of the house, it's pretty, I don't think about hunger as something that is equal across all problem areas. So I think there might be some people that are hungry to solve a certain problem, but not at all hungry to solve another. So I do feel like trying to deeply understand what makes someone tick and what makes them hungry is in my mind, um, a pretty important thing. And so what domain areas would the product manager um, feel a level of personal Investing to say i if if this problem weren't solved by me, the world would actually have a different outcome than compared to the way that it, I would be able to solve it. I think that's pretty important for a product manager to feel like if I didn't solve this problem, then no one would solve it quite the way that I would solve it, and you should feel that level of ability to contribute in that area so that's one that I, I feel like you know across the board you won't find a product manager that's going to be equally hungry to solve a problem across a list of 15 problems. Like, For example, I am not as hungry to solve certain set of problems in product compared to others and so I veer much more to the kind of problems that I, I get excited about solving and I think that's, that's also the case that I, I encourage everyone to do. On the curiosity side, it's really important on the caliber of questions that the product manager asks in an interview rather than just asking them questions and see how they respond. So, if they're curious, they're going to actually be observing the world differently. They're going to have some very interesting kind of perspectives in the world. They'll ask you questions about your business. They'll make you think about your business differently. Like those are just things that they'll spend a lot of time on and being deeply reflective and asking the right questions. So that's a pretty easy one to tell whether or not someone is curious or not. And once again, curiosity also varies by domain. There are certain areas where someone might not be as curious as other areas and so you know, just because you might not be uh, curious enough in one area, don't assume that you're not a curious human being. You, you just haven't found your area where you're naturally very curious about going out and solving a problem. And then clarity of communication is just pretty self-evident. And then on the inspiration side, um, you can typically tell when there is energy that gets created as a result of an individual interacting with you or an energy that gets depleted it's just very, very kind of apparent within the first 15, 20 minutes of a conversation. So, I don't know if that answers your question, Eric.
0: I think that was a great answer. And then my, my next question to add on to that is like thinking about now, not just the individual, but teams and how you build strong, high-performing teams and and how you continue to build that as you go through rapid scale of, of the product and, and the company.
1: Yeah, you know, we uh, think a lot about teams and how we build them. And I don't think it's a Perfect science, but we've got some strong opinions on them. And so let me kind of share with you the way that we think about teams that we've taken Amazon's kind of two pizza team mantra pretty seriously. And for those of the listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically don't construct teams that are too large. Have the teams small enough that they can be fed with two pizzas, which is basically like an eight to twelve person team that you want to try to keep it within. And if you can do the the thinking around that is when you when you keep the teams at that size there's a fair amount of throughput of communication back and forth between the people. People generally stay aligned and they're actually executing most of the time. Whereas when you have teams that are 40, 50, 60, 100 people, now what you're starting to find is most of the time is spent in coordinating and aligning rather than actually doing. So um, keep small teams. And then as your business grows, have many, many more small teams so that they grow rather than having few, very large teams. Now, every once in a while, you might have to have a large team, but you try to avoid having too many large teams because there's a productivity tax that you have to pay on when you have very large teams. And so what we do is have small teams, then the small teams are encouraged to you know, own a problem area and then have a local mission. And that local mission should tie to the company mission, but they should have their own metrics, which makes it very clear whether they're succeeding or failing. And I think that, you know, typically provides a level of empowerment and people feel like, wow, this is, um, I can make a difference. And, you know, like I tell someone when they join, when they join Box, like there's going to be a few places that you can go to where your work, regardless of the team that you're on, because we've constructed the teams very carefully, will actually really have a direct impact on the stock price. Like you, you know, over the long run, the work that you're doing in your team will actually move the needle for us one way or the other. The last thing I'd say about teams is, you know, the um, overall um, perspective that you need to have with the small teams is the challenge that you have with small teams is dependency management gets to be a pretty difficult thing. Because as you have a lot of small teams that need to work with each other, but the, in order to get your work done, you need something from someone else. And if they don't get the work done, then you miss your commits. I think that actually gets to be the largest challenge when you have a lot of small teams like we have, for example, at Box about 75 scrum teams or so, which are like about 8 to 12 people in size. And there's a lot of dependency between them. So that tends to be the tax that you pay with small teams. And so you have to then have the right processes in place to make sure that the dependencies get minimized. One way to minimize dependencies is try to have more full stack teams rather than having non-full stack teams. But in general, that's the thing that you have to be careful of so that you don't create. And we struggle with that all the time. You know, there are times when we, get the balance right, then there are times when we don't, and we have to constantly keep adjusting. But I do believe that it is much better to have that tax than to have the tax of having very, very large teams that get bureaucratic and slow and, you know, just get, you know, at some point in time, with the size, it just gets very inefficient.
0: Yeah, so there's a few things I'd love to dig in there. What's the makeup look like of those teams? You talked about, you know, eight to 12 people product teams, what's the skill set, you know, overall quality makeup of those teams typically?
1: Yeah, so we have this concept that I um, tend to guide it by, which is um, which we came up with a few years ago called P pod, which is you know, every letter in that word maps to a function in a team that a team might have. So like the first P is for product management, E is for engineering, A is for analytics, the second P is for program management. And the reason we break out product management and program management is typically it's very hard to find the same human being that's very creative and also knows how to run the trains on time. They tend to be different people, and uh, you want to make sure that those both of those people are there. So you're not you're not burdening someone who needs the creative think time to also have a project management and um, you know kind of rigor uh, as much as you can. So there's some kind of a program manager in place, um, and then O is for online growth if you have a growth-based team on the front end, and then D is for design. And so those are the six roles. And you might have a multiple number of actors in each one of those roles. Sometimes those roles do get combined. Like, for example, in engineering, you'll typically have, like, an engineering team with half a dozen engineers on a problem if you're working on something. Sometimes you might have two engineers. Sometimes you might have eight engineers. But that's the general makeup that you see of a team. That's at least how we've tried to do it. It's, um, you know, worked pretty well. Uh, And then there's, of course, there's, other roles and functions that might be more centralized functions like you might have an architecture council and you might have an API council and so on and so forth, so that you can make sure that people are able to get some level of standardization as your portfolio of products gets bigger and bigger.
0: Thanks. I think that, that clarification was super helpful. The other thing I was interested, you mentioned, you know, local missions, right? Missions from the, at the team level that they're measuring against and uh them tying to the overall company mission. Can you give us an example of one and and how it ties in?
1: Yeah, I, I personally feel like not having clarity on whether you're succeeding or failing is one of the most frustrating things that human beings can go through. So, it's okay to know that you're failing because then you know you can do something about it, but not knowing if you're succeeding or failing and if it just becomes a matter of opinion, it gets very hard. So, what we try to do is define what success looks like. And, It gets pretty easy in business sometimes. Success is a combination of a few things in product, right? One is you want to have a product that a lot of people use. You want to have a product that people pay money for, and you want to have a product that has low churn and they keep coming back for it. But understanding your number one metric, understanding how you are going to go out and optimize for that, and at different years in the life cycle and different stages of a product, you might actually tweak the metrics a little bit and, have different emphasis placed on it. But having the right metrics so that you know whether you're winning or losing is pretty important. And then what ends up happening is that just translates into a a scorecard and your plans can be done because you'll know exactly if you're winning or losing. And if you're losing, then what do you need to do to go out and adjust rapidly? And so uh, we've tried to kind of apply that kind of framework to it. So Everyone has a set of OKR. Every team has a set of OKRs. Every team has a set of metrics that they measure. And uh, they don't need someone to tell them subjectively whether or not something is going well or not. They just agree on the, on the metrics and the local mission, saying that the mission might be to go out and do a certain you have a certain set of impact that you want to have. And what is the way that we know whether we're achieving the mission is by going out and seeing if the needle and the metrics are getting moved. Okay. Which thanks. The analytics person is pretty important there as well because they can then give you the right level of instrumentation and tell you how you're doing against your metrics um, as you're going through that.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that being essential, right? Yeah. And then now part of all the all this team composition is, is also like this balance between vision, maintaining roadmap, tactically getting things done. How do you balance and delegate making decisions within multiple product teams? within your organization that I, I assume you know, at a large organization are rolling up through you know potentially multiple levels of management.
1: Yeah, we tend to have this structure that we've created, you know, that the way that we do it is we have uh, these meetings called B Strap meetings or product strategy meetings where Aaron, who's our CEO, myself and then one of our other co-founders, the three of us sit down and the product teams which is typically a combination of product management engineering come in and pitch their vision and they give their strategy and we just have to make sure that we are looking at the strategy across because we've got the purview of having a bird's eye view and having a broad aperture and then each one of the teams has the benefit of having a level of depth of understanding and so you want to make sure that the, the areas that they're going deep in aren't getting replicated in too many different places, or that you're not starting to build janky experiences over time because people are too focused on the local mission. So you're trying to tie those together. But making sure that there's a level of, you know, kind of a a debate that happens in those meetings so that you can kind of, um, you know, determine what's right, what's wrong, and have enough healthy tension in the system so that by the time it gets to the user, like most things are thought through and debated well enough ahead of time and then listen a lot to the customers early on and saying, okay, this is working, this is not working. If it's not working, how do we go out and make sure we make a pivot or a shift? I think it's super important. Sometimes what ends up happening is you know even a pricing or a packaging decision can have a meaningful impact on how your product is going to evolve. And so thinking about it holistically is pretty important as well, which is How are we gonna build this product? How are we gonna manifest it in different parts of the UI? How is it gonna be packaged? How is it gonna be priced? Is it gonna be explicitly monetized? Is it not gonna be explicitly monetized? If we explicitly monetize it, it's gonna have some level of friction that might not get you to the adoption rates you're looking for. If you don't monetize it, there might not be a logical place to put some of these capabilities in. Where do you manifest the capabilities? So all of those things you have to kind of keep thinking through as you're going through it. But the way that we do that is in those forums on the strategy meetings. And then there's also, of course, the forums for, you know, kind of operational reviews and all of that, where you see how the execution cadence is going. So I think strategy has a set of meetings for us, and the execution cadence has a separate set of meetings that we do.
0: So next question, talk to me a little bit about, so the roadmap behind these things you were just talking about, about this product strategy. What's your thought on transparency? How much transparency should there be between the product team and the rest of the company? And then how much of the roadmap do you share with customers?
1: So we tend to err on the side of excessive transparency because I don't fundamentally believe that it's worth you know like in some ways in especially in the enterprise giving customers an early look at what's actually being built and getting their input is far more important than trying to have something that's super secretive And then coming out with it in a big bang like that in my mind is like it's it makes for good theatrics, but I don't think that's how enterprises prefer to have it. They they want to see the visibility. I think what you have to be extremely clear is when is something pretty certain that it's going to be getting built versus what are things that are in exploration phase. And then the other thing that we have historically struggled with, and we've kind of you know gone back and forth on, and is pretty important that I think companies get right is. When you go into a beta cycle, there might be products that never make it from beta into GA because you found that the results in the beta weren't quite hitting the mark of what your assumptions were, and that's one of the reasons for the beta cycle, right? So, I think you have to kind of think, keep all of those pieces in mind. Um, so, we have a rolling twelve-month roadmap that we do, where the first ninety days of the roadmap are very kind of. Set in stone, and we give dates to to our customers and um, to the external community, saying this is when it's going to be coming out. The following ninety days, which is the you know second quarter that you might have um, in the rolling uh, four quarter cycle, we give them a little bit more of a that this is kind of estimated, but not planned to be delivered on these explicit dates, but it's going to be somewhere in the quarter. And so your probability of On time delivery goes down the further out you go, but at least gives the customer. Then you keep going on with uh, the third quarter and fourth quarter. And every quarter, you kind of roll 12 months of roadmap so that people always know what is coming and how we are thinking about this. And then there are things that move around between quarters. But as you get closer to the timeframe that it's going to be delivered, we get a little bit more precise on it so that customers can plan around the capabilities that we're going to deliver and how they're going to be able to ingest it. And this is, by the way, a big difference between an enterprise company and a consumer-grade company, where consumer companies just don't need to ever have a roadmap. And if you go to an enterprise company, an enterprise can't plan on their end, they wouldn't know how to plan their roadmap if they didn't have your roadmap. So you have to be, I think of it as just basic courtesy to make sure that we're providing customers with line of sight on what we're building so that they can then go ahead and plan what they're going to be doing on their end to implement it and implement it deploy it and get it to scale and train and have the resources to support and
0: all of that. So I'm going to change the direction a little bit. Talk to me about you know building products customers love. What does that mean to you? I know it's something that, you know, I'm very passionate about, but what does that mean to you?
1: You know, the way we think about it is build something that has an emotional appeal and puts a smile on someone's face. And so really think deeply about the experience, the friction that you create. Every product has friction. You want to try to minimize the amount of friction that you have and as you're building that also make sure that you're building something which is important enough as a problem to be solved by someone So build a painkiller not a vitamin because when you build painkillers and you build them in a delightful way i think people just they tend to love it they talk about it they actually their lives get better you know, there's outcomes that can be associated with that. Uh, it's more fulfilling for the people that are building the product because they see the impact on it. And it just creates this kind of virtuous cycle. And so um, I truly believe like paying attention to the details. Details matter. Defaults matter in the product. And just building it with that kind of mindset is uh, extremely important rather than just, um, you know, not thinking about the simplicity because, um the buyer wanted it, so you built something for the buyer and didn't really think about how it would manifest for the user. By the way, one of the most important things in building things people love is making sure that you identify what not to build. Because in order for people to love something, you have to keep it simple enough and streamlined enough, or you can't get too ambitious about building too many things, or it just gets to have sensory overload. Like Humans can only process a few things at a time, and you have to choose what the most important things are that you want them to go out and have um, value derived from your product rather than having like, you know, a thousand different knobs and dials that they, would, they, they need to turn. And as the product matures and as you get more and more into larger territories of uh, revenue, this is a huge risk that you have to be maniacally focused on and making sure that you don't kind of creep into that zone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like the longer a product is long around, inevitably, there seems to be too much complexity in, in most products out there. And yes, I, and, I think and that's
1: that's definitely to, Yeah, and you probably need to, like, you know, um, de-feature products as well from time to time. What are things that are not being used and why do we have it there? Or let's make sure that we hide it away. Or if something is hidden and is not surfaced up, then make sure that we, that we surface it up because that's actually would be used much more frequently, but you can't surface up everything because then it just looks very cluttered. So I think it's just, um, it's a pretty important kind of, sign of a good product leader to be able to take things out as much as to put things in
0: yeah and i i think that's a challenge though people look at and say oh we invested this money into a feature set and maybe that feature set now is not often used and not that you know usage is low sentiment is low but there's still this impetus like we've put this money we have spent dollars you know should we really just remove this
1: we struggle with this one. Uh, we have a joke internally, which is what's worse than having no customers is having one customer because now you can't de-feature something because enterprises will be like, oh my goodness, like how can you take that away? But there's always one customer. But I'll tell you, there's, there's companies that have literally gone out of business because they are with every feature, they're serving 5% of the user base, but there's no feature that serves 95% of the user base. And that actually causes a huge amount of inefficiency and it creates a crappy product by the end of it. So, you know, you have to, at some point in time, make some hard calls and not always will customers be happy in the moment, but they'll be happy in the long run because you'll have actually built a stable company that creates value for them on a sustained basis. So knowing when to have that level of um, conviction and uh, knowing when to, like, you can't listen to all of your customers equally. That That's a bad strategy, you know, on what to do. You have to listen to all of their problems, but then have your own diagnosis and what the solution needs to be. and. You know the name of the game is not popularity the name of the game is actually demonstration of value
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i, I tell people like if you think of two axes, like sentiment and usage and you you build a quadrant there you know of high and lows and you can then group things and take action plans maybe there's things that people love but aren't used very often that you can promote like you were talking about and bring to the front and then there's that group that people don't like and don't use very much that so you got to figure out how to retire so you can free up those technical resources that are maintaining that.
1: I tell you that the hardest thing that we go through on that dimension is when we feel like there's a better way to do something and we have to dial it down. Oftentimes you have, you know, the sales team or the go-to-market teams come and say, well, you know, if we defeature this thing, like this customer will churn. It's like, I can guarantee you for the, even the most absurd, unwanted feature in box. If I defeature feature it, there's gonna be some customer that's gonna to threaten to churn. But the reality is, is what we have to do is keep in mind that what is good for the line share of customers rather than the individual customer, while still keeping in mind that those individual customers you have a responsibility to that you don't do anything that's completely rational. And so it just requires a lot of thoughtfulness. And by the way, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. This is something that just requires, you know, thinking and iterating and engaging with customers and also on just explaining the rationale to customers and the trade-offs one of the things we found extremely valuable is we do these advisory boards and advisory councils with customers and we'll sometimes explain our rationale and why we decided to do things a certain way and that explanation of the rationale actually gets them to appreciate how we have to be thinking about a product that is going to be used by 65 million users and a company with three employees and 400,000 employees alike, that you need to make sure that you can't just take everyone's requirements and jam it in. Like, you know, one of the reasons that you have a natural governor in place is because you just have a limited amount of resources. But let's assume in a world of abundance, you had all the resources to build every feature request that you had. We would guarantee build the worst product in the market if you listened to every customer feature request and built it because it would just be too cluttered and too kind of overwhelming. So Trade-offs are not just because you've got limited resources. Trade-offs are because trade-offs are what make a great product. Absence of trade-offs just makes a crappy product.
0: I like that quote. So if we look to the future, what do you see as trends in product management? So big trends I see
1: right now is um, one of the ones that has been you're starting to see happen more and more now is just having instrumentation and data that tells you like, how the product's performing. Aaron had a really good tweet today. Um, online, which is worth actually mentioning, and he was citing Apple on it. But, you know, it's um, specifically around this notion that in the past, it used to be around how much data do I collect so that I can get all the information I want to build a great product. And in fact, now the times that we live in, the question is, how little data can I collect to get away with building the best product? Because that actually protects privacy and that protects yeah, you know, from a security and compliance and governance perspective, it's a really important thing. So I think there's also a trend in product to really, really make sure that you uh, and we've been actually walking the walk and talking the talk for a few, uh, for over a decade now on this one because we are not at all confused that our customers own their data. We are mere custodians of the data. They actually have full right on the on the data that they put into our system. But, you know, I think like that's an area which is super important, especially in serving the enterprises. And you're actually starting to see just as important even on the consumer side is people just don't like their privacy and security kind of violated. And so keeping that, being very serious about that and making sure that you're going the extra mile on that is super important. One of the trends that we see as you get products to scale is sometimes the customer might not even do something. Your product might have not even done something that was wrong, but the customer did it in an unintended way, and you still bear the responsibility of that. You need to make sure that you're thinking through those scenarios. You can't just say, well, the customer, it was a user error, because if the user error still causes business damage, you still have a responsibility to be deeply thinking about it and make sure that you create an experience that minimizes that user error on their side. So I think it's just a very, um, it's an interesting kind of world that we're in where I think I'm glad to see privacy getting more and more prioritized, but I don't think that conversations on privacy are um, like they, they have to be deeply thought through because you might be thinking you're actually doing something for the sake of privacy. And in fact, what you might have is an unintended consequence in different areas. You just have to make sure that you're deeply thinking through these things and consulting customers and making sure that you're keeping the security professionals in mind while also keeping usability in mind and making sure that all of those things are kind of looked at in harmony with one another.
0: Yeah, I I like that point you made in particular about, you know, you're responsible for what your customers might do in error that causes consequences and and thinking through what they could possibly do that would lead to those, you know, bad scenarios. Exactly, yeah. I I know we're, you know, we've talked about a lot. I could talk to you for at least another hour, but... Let's focus on maybe a final few, you know, first, I'd love to know, like, how do you choose where to spend your time outside of box?
1: So it's easy for me because I have an eight-year-old daughter. So most of the time is spoken for. I have an 81-year-old mother and I have, um, you know, a better half who she's, um, you know, so between the three of them, like most of my time gets spoken for the time other than that, besides taking care of your health and trying to do as much as you can work, although I'm as out of shape as I could possibly have imagined I would be at this point in time. So I'm not working out and exercising enough, but you know, you tend to carve out some time for exercise and all of that. But the one area that I think would be a good tip that might be worth it for the listeners is I try to have at least one dinner, if not every week, then every other week, with someone outside a box. And the reason for that is you can very quickly become very insular, and then be in an echo chamber. If you just meet with people within the same group, and having someone come in with an entirely different perspective and asking them questions is actually super insightful. So I try to have dinner with someone. And we're so lucky in Silicon Valley, because this is such a close knit community and people are so willing to give back and give their time. And so I, I, I'll usually try to do that with people in my peer group and in different companies and all of that so that we can just exchange ideas and learn from each other.
0: Yeah, I love that. I know uh, I try to do as many product leader dinners uh, when I'm traveling as possible. I think those things are invaluable. Yeah. Now I need to figure out how to combine the exercise component because I'm like you kind of neglecting that with some of the, <laughs> the leader dinner concepts. Uh, that maybe is my next project.
1: You know, it's actually the sad part is it's the most important thing in life is your health. It's actually, I would argue, more important than your kids and family in some way, because if you don't have your health, then you won't be able to enjoy your kids and family. So you got to have the oxygen mask on you first, right? So at, at some point in time, easier said than done, but I'm trying as much as I can to make it to the gym and all of that whenever you can.
0: I'm right there with you. So what's your favorite product and why is it your favorite my favorite product is actually other than box,
1: I mean, I'm assuming. Yes, yes. <laughs> so one of the best products that I have purchased with money is Peloton. And uh, talking about exercise, I think they have built such a remarkable product. I think they just filed to go public and I will, I would just buy a ton of shares with Peloton and hold it for life because it's just such an amazing company and what they've done in the product and the way that they've pulled it all together. I loved uh, Tesla as well uh, until this week, but right now I'm having some challenges because my I'm having some service issues with them. But you know, Tesla is a pretty amazing product. But I think Peloton is just remarkable in the way that they've been able to just get the streamlining and you know, like they've they've solved the problem in such a unique way and it's so thoughtful. Like it's one of the most silent bicycles. They've got a great kind of program. You've got these amazing classes. So I, I'd say that I actually created a slide one time that said top 10 reasons I love the Peloton. I posted it on Twitter, but it's one of those products which I think is one of the best products ever built.
0: And so one final question for you today. Um, three yeah. words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself.
1: That, that's a hard one, man. You leave the hardest question until the end. I, I think I'd call myself curious and one and insanely humbled about how much I don't know it's not one word, but it's kind of um, the concept and you can try to put it in one word. But how m- older I get, the more I realize how much I don't know. And then the third one would be um, at my daughter's service.
0: <laughs> I love it. Love it. Those are great words. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today. This has been great. I, I greatly enjoyed it. And if you ever need a dinner buddy, I'm around. Hey, thank you so much, Eric. And um, I'll take you up on that. And um, it's such a pleasure to, um, to spend some time with you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.